Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We got everybody at the house here. We just had a big old fish fry. Had some crappie, some boudin balls, all kinds of stuff. It was good. Uh, We got Mr. Shane Parker back on the podcast. Shane, how are you? I'm doing well. How are y'all? I'm doing great. Great to have you back here, man. I appreciate you coming down for this. Gladly. Uh, Michael Pike is here. The Dilla is back in the house. What's up, everybody? Dude, fan favorite. (laughs) Listen, been asked for months. When's the Dilla coming back? And he is back for this episode, guys. And then also, uh, we've got our buddy, 
Paul Putera back on the podcast. If I can talk. Podcast. <laughs> uh, shit, uh, Paul, I can't talk. Paul. <laughs> How are you doing, bud? Paul, you made it nervous. I'm doing great. <laughs> doing great. Oh, man. It, man, this is going to be a fun podcast episode. So this is going to be a part three, might be a part four, might be a part five. I don't really know quite yet. Uh, to our episode we did with both, well, with everybody here uh, back in May when we were discussing, uh, you know, some trail cam studies and everything that, uh, Shane, you have been a part of, uh, running, again, 170 trail cameras on public land to really kind of fine-tune deer movement and everything else. And the first two episodes have been fantastic. We've had a lot of really interesting feedback. And actually, on the Hunting Beast forum, I saw a few guys that were, like, talking about in threads, like, can't wait for part three, that were recommending part one, part two for different guys uh, based off the trail cam movement, which is really fascinating. So super excited to talk to that about that today. Uh, Shane, can you just catch us up for any new listeners? Because I guarantee there's going to be a lot of new listeners on this episode that haven't listened to part one, part two, which, Andrew, maybe we can look up the episode numbers for that. Um, Shane, just give us a quick background. You know, what has been uh, – or what, what has gone into this camera study, what you've been doing, the length of time, the cameras, the whole nine yards, just to kind of refresh everybody's mind before we get started. Well, I started um, doing, you know, cameras probably this – what's gone into this basically three, three and a half, almost four years ago. And it just slowly developed. And, of course, last year it culminated with, um, you know, 170 cameras that are spread out over roughly 100 or 820 acres. And I basically did it just to see how, um, I just, like I said, this is an area I told you all originally that, that I hunted years ago and never really had very much success in it. So I decided, well, I'm, I've got to figure out how to break it down. So... Um, I had the opportunity to add a bunch of cameras to what I already had and just kind of added along as I went. And it was basically just to see how the deer moved within that area, if there was a pattern to it, whatever, you know, any information I could get. And it kind of ballooned into finding data for a, uh, another a camera study that basically just looked at scrape and scrape interactions. And I just kind of worked off of that. And it's just kind of snowballed into the point that I added a, a friend of mine who does algorithms to break down all the data that I had into a, a format that I could actually understand, like what is everything that I saw, you know, and that's basically what I'm presenting to y'all right now is kind of the initial breakdown of that. And listeners, if you're listening right now, um, at some point in the next day or so, when you're listening to this episode, we're going to have a social media post posting these charts um, that Shane has broken down with, uh, you know, a gentleman that's helping him out kind of a little bit more on the technical side, you know, when it comes to this study, it's amazing what we're going to be discussing today and what was being found. And, and a lot of people real quick, right off the top, uh, Shane, a lot of guys are probably wondering like if they're new listeners and they hadn't heard the first two episodes, which Andrew, what were the first two episodes? It's, uh, episode 370 and 372. Okay. So if you haven't heard those two episodes with Shane uh, and Paul the first time, go back and listen to those episodes 370 and 372. But a lot of guys are going to be wondering, like, why are you running so many trail cameras on such a small piece of property? Okay. Or it's such a, not small piece of property, but in a general tight area. And maybe we can kind of explain now, since we're going to be talking more about the travel aspect of how that's been important to kind of figure out how quickly and often are bucks using these general areas and also trying to figure out if you can catch them multiple times throughout yeah. a day on camera. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reason I did so many is because I had so many, you know, like it was just, it almost become my kind of, kind of an obsession. Um, last year, I guess I could, I was obsessed with it, uh, obviously, but it, I wanted to see what areas of the forest they weren't using. That was my main thing. Like, I was I was frustrated as a hunter to go out to an area that I thought I would see deer in and not see anything. And I did that for years. And so having the opportunity with these cameras to actually like, okay, I, let me find where they are and let me identify that and see if that will work over the entire area. Like you take a thousand acres, you take, you know, two square miles or however much space you want. And basically break it down into what percentage of the forest are they actually using? What can I eliminate from my hunting so I'm not wasting my time? And what do I need to focus on? You know, and so my focus was bedding, doe bedding, uh, scrapes, the hub scrapes that I eventually kind of ran into, and then just how do they travel between those because those are the most important things in your, your arsenal that you're, you're hunting during hunting season are those those parts of it and so that's what I focused my initial you know I guess 
last year. And then as it's went along, I've discovered other things that are really important that you have to know that I think a lot of people who run cameras are just missing out on altogether. And one thing I want to mention early on this episode, uh, so you were working hand-in-hand with a, a university with part of this. And one thing I want to mention is so there's some, and so many studies out there that universities have taken part of. And a lot of universities or, or school kind of or university-funded uh, um, studies have been used to study different aspects of white-tailed deer. And one thing that we've discussed a little bit earlier tonight, and, and Paul, I'm sure you can kind of, you know, see this as well, because I know you're very in-depth, you know, with um, or a very in-depth knowledge of uh, the studies that, um, is it Pens- or Penn State has done yeah. up there in yep. your neck of the woods? They only study, when they're looking doing a study for, say, deer movement or whatever, they're looking at one or two factors. They're not looking at everything like what we're going to be discussing today. And the problem is, like, the manpower. Like, when we've had Bill Thompson on the podcast from Spartan Forge, he's talked about that. Like, there's only so much time and money that they can put into this. And to get the details that a lot of us whitetail hunters want to know that we're going to be discussing today, uh, they just don't have the manpower. They don't have the uh, they don't have the funding for it to be able to go that in depth with a lot of these different studies, and that's really Shane what you've done. I mean, you've taken it upon yourself with a full time job, family, the whole nine yards, and, and, and you're, uh, you're the person that's been assisting you as well, kind of putting all the the data together to do what we white owners have wanted to be done. Yeah. Okay. Like what 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 does all this mean? You know what can I what can I use it for? That's basically what I, I try to do is, okay, how's this going to make me a better hunter? You know, how's this going to make me, you know, give me the, the tools to say, okay, I need to hunt this day, but why do I need to hunt this day? You know, and that's kind of, that's kind of what I wanted to break this down into and I'm going to continue to do, you know. So before we get in, in much more detail here, because we're about to get very deep, and again, this may be a multi-part episode or series just on this day that we're looking at in front of us because it's so much here. Um, can you, can we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, in this area, uh, you know, we're, we're in Alabama. Uh, can we talk about like the timing of the rut here and some of those important mm-hmm. factors before yeah. we kind of get into more specifics here? Yeah. The area that we're in, the rut generally falls the last week in November, maybe the first couple of days of December. That's the main bulk of the rut. Uh, there is a, it's not a secondary rut, but we're on the, I guess this area is kind of on a fringe of two different doe groups or doe strains, basically. And the other doe strain, they rut or they go into estrus the second week of December, uh, typically. So uh, that's why this is an elongated rut. It's just different. There's also a second, or I'm mean, actually a third strain of deer that have been introduced recently into the area, or recently by long-term scales, into the area that that actually um, they go into estrus the last week of October. And it all plays out in all the data. You can literally look at it and say, yeah, that's exactly the way I thought it was going to be. You know, that's kind of kind of what I came away looking at saying, yep, that's about what I thought, you know. So, yeah, as far as the dates, that's what you're looking at. The, the, the initial small rut is the last week of October, 1st of November, and around Thanksgiving. And then the next one is the second week of December. Okay. So, so with all this data, Andrew, I'm going to pass it over to you. Where yep. do you where do you want to kind of start? Because there's a well, there's a ton I, here. I'll say that uh, also another preface: if people haven't heard those first episodes that we did with y'all, um, they need to go back and listen to them. The one that again, 370 and 372, and uh, not only did you run all these cameras, but you also have weather stations on them, which uh, also just give you, you know, especially when you're hunting out and way out away from an uh, airport, basically, or uh, just a big city. You're really far away from a weather station. Yes. You know, I mean, you could yeah. be 40 miles from yeah. the weather, and the weather that you're getting on whatever app you use is coming from yeah. that weather station. Yeah. And so uh, you put like little, like I don't know, not, yeah. not across pocket. weather stations on all, on, not mm-hmm. all, but in 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 I think five different locations. Yeah, so you're getting the exact <coughs> conditions for that exact spot. Yes, which is mm-hmm. very cool. And so, yeah. and then you just you've compiled this into just a, a heap of cool information. Yeah. And the way I did the weather stations, I put a couple on the hub scrapes, a couple on primary, but I had them located in different areas like low, mid elevation, high elevation, and then I had one at a really high elevation. So you get a good cross mm-hmm. section of what's happening at all the different elevations yeah, yeah. No, not to get too sidetracked on that uh first i want to say two things first off guys we're 10 minutes into this podcast if you are not subscribed to this podcast make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also i guarantee you're going to want to make sure you listen to this whole series that we're going to be discussing uh, with this data and make sure you share it with some buddies here as well but shane did you i'm sure you have but i'm just curious with all the different uh, uh weather stations that you had placed at the kind of different elevation spots 
Did you ever cross analyze like between the different weather stations and seeing if there's consistent factors or seeing if there was again uh, different effects that were happening where maybe it was showing up different wind or temperature conditions? Or uh, yes, and and there was the the you know it the higher elevations had a higher wind of of course had the lower elevations had less wind but the dew points didn't vary very much they didn't affect that very much uh, but it was the the um, the the wind directions could vary depending on what where the the weather stations were at there was a lot of times where the lower elevations carried a consistent wind whereas the upper elevations they they you know, switching wind a lot so, interesting yeah. yeah and some of these charts in here i mean you've got um mature their location by month temperature relating to deer movement correlation to dew point uh dates wind direction Doe bedding, uh, primary scrape visits by date. Like, dude, you got you got it all yeah. in here, which is fascinating, especially when we were outside just a minute ago. You know, we did a big old fish fry, and we were all sitting around there uh, frying some fish, talking about this stuff before we got started on this podcast. And uh, I'm trying to figure out which one I want to get started with. <laughs> but, um, I mean, honestly, one of the coolest ones, I think, was the buck location by month. Yeah. This first one right here. Uh, this is a chart where it is like it's it's weighted by location and so you get a different um a different like reading for, uh, based on camera site yeah and then that's correlated against uh which month it was which correct month, yeah so uh, you know if if the buck was on one camera in one location and he was only there one time but he was on another one in a completely different location for three times it's going to be weighted higher for the location that had the three visits instead of the one, so it 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 balances out to give you a good representation of how they're mo- how he moved or they moved within their home ranges. Okay, so, yeah. I was gonna say let's talk a little bit more about this because uh, again, guys that you're listening, I, I kind of wish this was a film podcast, but we're gonna have these charts posted as well. So, you know, if you're listening to podcast, you should be able to go to Facebook or Instagram and be able to see the different charts. Uh, but we're starting with that first one. This is again mature bucks location by month. Shane, can you describe this a little bit for us? Kind of like what we're looking at here, how many yeah. bucks we're talking about? This was three mature bucks that were living within the range of another buck, uh, a more mature buck that I would classify probably a five-and-a-half to six-and-a-half-year-old. And these were at least three-and-a-half-year-old bucks. And they ran kind of as a group. Um, they, If you saw one, you pretty much saw the other three very shortly after. They, they kind of stayed in the same area. So they were easy to track uh, with as many cameras as I had in that area. And basically what it did was track them within a movement within uh, their range and um, where they were per each area during the month. Like it took um, it, it took an entire month to kind of parse down how, you know, where they were. With, or it took a, a, a good bit of uh, camera data to, to parse down where they were within that month. And it just basically tells you, okay, well, they were up high this, they were here this month, they were low this month, you know. And kind of goes goes throughout the year of where they were. So, so let's let's talk about this uh, and real quick, Paul. I want to ask you because we're already thir- we're thirteen minutes to the podcast. I want to see. Do, do you have any specific questions so far before we get more into this specific topic uh, with this first chart? Now you got those three and a half year old bucks moving. How different was the older buck on the cameras? Uh, I couldn't count on him. Yeah. He- yeah, I he was taking his own route. Yeah, he and... was taking his own route. Yeah, I couldn't count on him to even figure into this. He was an entire separate, you know, uh, a separate entity on his own. You know, he didn't he didn't yeah, follow and, their and path. He's in the same place, but yet he's still moving different. I would say if, if you saw the number of visits that they had compared to his, uh, one of their the one one of the three and a half year olds could put out as much data as he did in an entire year they could put out in a month you just never saw him you know i mean he was like a ghost i mean he would just appear and then you know, he'd be gone for a month but he's still right there you know like was he very very specific he was like i'm gonna take this trail when i go this way i'm going right through here and yeah he, he had i, I could uh-huh. only get him i had like i want to say i had 40 cameras in this area that covered this like their travel routes and i only caught him on two of the cameras what was what I found interesting about this chart was these three bucks. Uh, they they group up really well, like pretty obviously. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, they, they weren't they weren't identical, but mm-hmm. this gives you a 
like a median of where they were. Yeah. So if that makes sense. Well, so the these lower values down here, which people can't see the chart, but it basically goes creek bottom, yeah. kind of a, a big cutover that's kind of in the transition area, mm -hmm. and then up top, up way top. up on a ridge, yeah, way up on open hardwoods. Mm -hmm. And uh, down in the creek bottom, they were there for the months of uh, June, July, October, November, December, and January. Yes. They So they spent late summer, kind of winter mm -hmm. down there. And then they ended up in February and March in that transition area, in that big big yep. cutover that's kind of halfway over. up. Yep. And then in April and May, they wound up at like the top of the mountain, basically. Yeah, but basically. also in September and or August and September, they were up there at the top of the mountain. Yep. So they kind of made like a little jaunt up there for two months in the middle of summer, <laughs> which is really interesting. Yeah. That's before our season opens. So, I mean, yeah. I guess it doesn't really matter when it comes to actually hunting them. No. But... I just that that's something that kind of surprised me. I'm like, okay, why did they just go up there like that randomly that time of year? The only thing I can think is that you know, I mean, that I had in mind was that that's the end of the like their 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 growing cycle that that August September range, and they're they're about to go hard horned, and maybe they're just getting away from the thicker stuff. That's that's kind of what I thought at that period of time, and like we talked about earlier, I think the going up in April. And, and May is getting, you know, in that area where everything is starting to really green up and you're getting that that burst of of uh, the forbs that are coming out that are really green and really, you know, full of nutrients. That first green up is moving up and they're moving up. Yeah. It, you know. And this is cool because Jacob and I have actually turkey hunted this area and we were there in the month of March and the uh, the the difference between what was at the bottom of the mountain versus at the top. I mean, you hit a, a very defined line. And above that line, there was no green. It was still like it was December. So something I was basically wanting to go over a little bit earlier, basically before we started the podcast, I was looking at, you know, this mature buck location by month, and I was wondering if it had to do with the, the moon. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of similarities with April and May and then August and September. What I found on here on the internet is showing that uh, both of those April and May and August and September the perigee of the moon so basically how close it is on both of those it was the furthest perigee and they both both of them lined up is 223,000 miles and 226,000 miles for both April and May and August and September and that's when they were up high Right. So, yeah, so you're talking about uh, the data points. So how far the moon is from the Earth? Yeah, and it was further away, mm -hmm. so it's almost like they went up in elevation. <laughs> I got to give like them some got... more moon, man. No, wait, hold Trying on. No, 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 this, this, this is super fascinating. I'm so sorry so, but, for all the new hunters. Cause and, yeah. and, and, like, and like Paul just said, this is this is perigee. So what I didn't realize is, is there's really – so the apogee is when it's furthest away from the Earth – there's really not a whole lot of difference in any month with how far the moon is away. It's almost like it either comes closer or back to normal. So with the perigee, though, um, it it went as far as basically 229,000 miles away. And what was funny is 229 and 228, which was the furthest it was, lined up with February and March. Which is, where were they at? In a whole separate area They're, yeah in the cutover they were in the transition area so let i want i want to come back to that i want to break down a little bit more like why as we're discussing this chart because again like literally we can almost get a single podcast episode on each one of these charts but <laughs> ju just can you talk a little bit more about again when we're talking the home ranges here we've andrew kind of mentioned the months that these bucks are kind of hitting different points but you have one area that you have a lot of cameras down in the creek bottom one is in that transition area in that cutover big heavy cut select cut and then the other cameras locations are up on top of the ridge top and you're kind of following those bucks up and down in elevation um what was some of the data points that you've kind of realized after looking at this that was kind of interesting for you shane it's just how well the main thing was how it just like switched like it like we were looking at the data and it was just like on a this on a day they're like okay they're up here up here up, up here and then gone they're in the bottom yeah like it's almost like oh something clicked got to go to the bottom now you know yeah that was the main thing is just how how quick that transition was it was like okay we're in the bottom we're in the bottom the next day they're in top and then they're never in the bottom again you know or they're in that transition zone 
and then there, you know, it just that that was the main thing is just how stark that switch from where they were, where they were comfortable with, to now I'm I'm completely changing and I'm going to a, a not a new area, but an area that I'm familiar with, but I'm doing it like overnight. Was it getting too dry? I, I don't know. I mean, we've had really wet, you know, like we haven't had any drought in three years. That's what was another thing we were talking about. So I, I, I'm in a like serious drought around here right now. That's kind of making me wonder what they're going to do this year. I'm interested to find out on my cameras. I, I almost, I can see the, 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 the bottom land because I mean, you typically, when, when it gets to be the rut, you typically see the deer move lower in elevation. Cause that's where the does are, you know, and, and same thing here. Like that's where they moved in that October, November, December, January timeframe, they moved down where all the does were. So I can see that, but it was just amazing. Like how, quickly okay it's like okay october 1st i'm i'm out of here you know like i'm not i'm not going to be in my you know my high ridge top anymore i'm just going straight to the bottom and that's where i'm gonna stay for the next you know four months yeah can, can we go uh real quick just on this can we go month by month with these bucks just to kind of again because people are gonna be able to see this but also can we just like kind of shane like you were doing with me outside kind of explain that transition from january all the way through uh december of that year well i'll start to i'll actually start in october okay because that's that's like you know, we're that, that's the beginning of everybody kind of hunting. So in October, they were in the bottoms. They were in the creek bottoms, and they stayed there through the month of October, November, December, and January. And as soon as January got, they moved up in elevation to a um, a select cut cutover, pretty large one, that was about three or four years old. It's really thick, and they stayed there the entire month of February and March, pretty much. I remember that because I didn't get any in them. None of it, it had, had a couple food plots that were down low that they had been visiting at night and that just completely dried up like nothing, you know. It's, it sounds like they're yarding. Yarding, like yeah. like they get all that high stem count, that, that the carbs. Yeah, and, they're looking for food source. Yeah, that, oh yeah, but, I mean, yeah, they clearly went into that, into that select cut to get, you know, because by, by the time January rolled around in that bottom land, everything was dead. You know, all of the nice, less vegetation. And, and they moved in that select cut where it was just nothing but briars, green briar. I mean, everything just still green, you know. And they stayed there the entire February and March. And then after that, they moved up, in, up even more in elevation in, in the month of, I guess we're looking at um, March and April. They moved up in elevation, went to the higher ridge, ridge tops. And... The only thing I noticed about that that stood out is they also made excursions at that point in time down low. Like I would get some images of them in the bottom, you know, at night mostly. So they were making a long, pretty long, you know, trek from the bottom land up. And but they were spending most of the time up. That's one thing I wanted to mention. While we're doing, like, you mentioned this early on, but I just want to, again, explain for the listeners. When you're saying that this deer, like these deer were down the bottoms for like three or four months, you had them on other trail cameras as well, but majority of the time, when, it, when time. you looked at all the data and with the calculations, yeah. majority of their time was down low. Yeah. So this is kind of looking at a majority. Yeah, they were popping up in other places, but, you know, majority yeah. of the time they were in these general locations and there was yeah. a very tight pattern with that. Yeah, it, it, the only, the, we, we counted it as, as this is where they were the majority of the time, and it, the majority being 80%, I think is what he wrote in. So it had had to had to eclipse the eighty percent marker. It wasn't you know, it wasn't counted in there. So if you had a week and you had them on one camera, four times you had them on this camera one time. The one was thrown out. The four were counted. Basically how, how they done it. So, so are y'all good on the no. mature bucks by location? No, well, no, because I was going to ask Mike. So Mike, because you went right off the right into the deep end real quick with us talking about the perigee and everything. Because I have no idea what that is. Um, what what's like some of your take on that again? Just kind of bring it back up with the listeners because I have no idea. Like the pair, you had the perigee and the and what was the other one? The apogee, apogee, which is something that Bill Vell talks about a lot. You know, with the perigee and apogee. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to go back and refresh on <laughs> all that because there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. But yeah, that you know, I was initially just wondering where the position at was in relation, you know, to the earth, like you know. Not necessarily how far it was away, but, you know, we come in this little rotation where, you know, you have the seasons, you know, which are changing. And I didn't know if that correlated with where, you know, everything, like where the sun was. Maybe we could look at the sun in relation to, you know, those periods, you know, especially the April and May because it's April and May. And then you have June and July, which is, you know, 
really like the middle of the the year and on the back end you have august and september so i figured there was some correlation between april and may in august and september yeah and that, that's something interesting because you're saying that there is a pattern when you just look at this positioning wise at least with a, a few of those months right yeah the the june and the june and july moving back down in the bottom land i mean i guess that kind of makes sense in a way because it is that you know that is your their prime growing for you know antler growth so being down low where there's calcium rich soil and, and plants and everything else and it just being cooler you know like you're getting out of the hottest part of the the summer i guess during that period of time. what if it has to do with light well that was yeah, that was kind of yeah. my thing yeah. especially with seeing them come to the cutover you know when it's furthest away but there again i mean it was furthest away also in october the month of october but they're they're down in the bottom so um i don't know if a lot of this is correlated indirectly you know with the position of the sun it's going to affect probably where the moon is at and then well i, I mean like night like the moon reflection it's right. going to be it's going to be weaker so they'll be they want to go up to get more light from the moon and right and or and or in more open areas the only outlier would be that October time frame because it was further away, but they were still majority in the bottom. So I don't, we would definitely have to look at it a lot more. Like when I say indir indirectly, like some of these things, you may have one factor that affects multiple different, you know, like the sun position. It, I'm sure it's going to affect where the moon position is. And then also you have like the seasons changing, but that's also because of like, where that position is of the sun, which also, you know, changes the growth. So, I mean, all of it could be related to one thing, but a lot of these are correlating, you know, around the same yeah. time. Because when I grow my garden, I know I get different growth spurts throughout the season in my garden, depending on, like, like some, some like, I think, like, maybe, maybe with the light or something. Or something will change. All of a sudden, you get these spikes. It's just like when we're in hunting season, and you have you know all of these deer who are bedding on the south-facing slope. It's because the sun is further south at that time of the year. You know, it's in this little elliptical, and it's going back and forth. And that's what I think that some of this is relating to. One of the reasons I really like this here is is if you always hear people say, "Oh, if you run a lot of trail cameras, or you're you're you're." You know, doing a lot of scouting. Oh, I see a deer here, a, a buck in one area, and boom, he just disappears. Like I don't see him anymore. You know, where did he go? You know, that was that was one of the things. Well, maybe he's not really leaving. He's just using a different part of his home range that you can't see. You know, because most people that are running trail cameras are are scouting. They're scouting a very small spot. You know, or if you're running trail cameras, you're spreading them out over a. You know, you may may have ten. Attends a lot for most people, you know, and it you may only be covering five or six acres, seven acres, nine acres, you know, of of actual ground with your trail camera, getting the the the, the information from just that acreage because that's what I've figured in is one camera will gain you about uh, 0.7 acres of coverage. That's kind of what we come up with. That, so how, how did y'all come up with that? Just by by looking at what we what I was covering. And what I wasn't covering and how much, um, like in areas that I had a camera out that I was getting no images from, like you can completely, like if you take 600 acres and you look at it, you can already hack off about two thirds of it that the deer are just not going to use. I mean, that's, that's, that's the average. So if you take just a 600 acre block, you can eliminate two thirds of it just right off the block. They're only going to use about one third of it. And so you've got to find that one third. When you parse that down by, okay, let me take let take 600 acres and, and divide it into thirds. Well, if I take 100 cameras over that remaining amount, well, I'm getting this much acreage per camera. So that's about what, you know, what we got on this was if one, ca one camera will cover about seven tenths of an acre, you're getting, you're getting the, in the information from that seven tenths. And the rest of it is you have no clue about. You know, uh, on the aspect of the deer using X number of acres out of this block, you know, have you found any, like, just 
jam up correlation between like you can walk into a spot and be like they're probably using this versus that before you put cameras out based on what you've learned uh i i, I couldn't before i mean i thought it was just kind of a guessing game i can now you know i got a lot better idea, you know idea of what it is now because now i can i can literally take a camera now and kind of look at just an overview and say well yeah i know he's going you know this is where i'm and, and it works you know like what what is what are some of those factors that you're looking for? Uh, I'm looking for dra- drainages. If I want to find a deer, if I'm just if I if I come into a new area, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to locate every drainage I got, and I'm going to go to the top of the lower one third, and I'm going to put a camera on it, a couple probably. Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls, and it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master call and success call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com, use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable. Like, everybody's jaws were dropping. Like, when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. It's a great option. Same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give True Lock a shot this spring, you can head over to truelockchokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with True Lock. The top of the lower, lower one, one third. third. Yep. Okay. That, that's where I'm going to start out. And I'm going to probably, and, and I, that's where I feel like I have my most, the the best chance of seeing what's coming in within that area. 
and I'm going to do that on if let's let's just say I take one ridge because uh, there I'm working in the ridges may be 300 acres you know it may be a 200 acre to 300 acre ridge system you know I'm going to identify every one of those drainages I'm going to go to the top of the lower one third and I'm going to put cameras up uh, in all the drainages in all the drainages okay yep, I'm going to cover the entire thing and and I guarantee you within a week I'll know what's in that area. Yeah, when I when I'm hunting in the season, that's how I usually start my hunts. In place, I usually get to that that one third part on the bottom, and I start there. If I start to see deer moving off the hill, then they're coming. You know, and then I can figure out how to set up. Uh, you, you want me to tell you the reason? Yeah, and okay. then I want to ask about yeah. camera position. Oh, dude, yeah. keep going. I'm 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 over here that's like getting jittery. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have, this is this is how I have figured out. <clears throat> I guess the the key is that top of the lower one third is the bottom of most most ridges have blowdown, have stumps, have you know. If it's been affected by wind, most all of that ends at that lower at the top of that lower one third. You'll have a band of like blowdown, you know, trees, and, and that's also like a a. a, a I guess a crest area for the lower canopy. Once you get above that in most of this elevation, your canopy is going to kind of thin out. You're going to have a band of thinner canopy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And they, they'll ride that one-third. Like okay. they'll come up from the bottom, hit that one-third, and, and drop off into the drainage, and they'll go either up the drainage or they'll go across the drainage and up the next side, up into like – thicker areas and these are the yeah. little bitty drainages like maybe like it might have a creek but it might not be a flowing creek yeah. or whatever no yeah it's, it's most of there's rocky you know and it's just runoff yeah but it's just rocky runoff you what, know? what kind of camera uh when, when you're just going to a spot and that's how you'd be starting out based off what you've learned so far by doing the study it's kind of focusing on these drainages and that the top of and putting your trail camera at the top of the lower one third is where you're putting that camera location. Then you're catching those deer, like you said, like that lower canopy, like that's the crest of it. So it's like they're just getting above that lower canopy, lower canopy. in the bottom, kind of yep. cruising that edge. What does your camera placement look like in those spots? As in, are, do you like to play face it uphill, downhill, side uh, hill, along the trail? I usually get like if you're looking up the drainage, I'll have one to the right, up on the crest. Like when it when when the drainage kind of flares out and you get that where it starts leveling off to the side hill, I'll put it right there, looking down into the into the drainage and I'll put one on the other side looking up uh opposing it and usually I'll go below and put one looking up to do three cameras three different cameras I got two if I if I have them but I'd rather do three that way I can get if they're coming side heel into it if they're coming straight up from the bottom or if they're coming side heel from the other side I've got them right there how, so, how often do you get a sorry but how <laughs> how often are you getting a deer just on one of those cameras that you would have totally missed with the other two? Oh, I mean a lot yeah. Like just about yeah. every time, like you're you're uh, only getting them on one camera. I would say, I would say, if I've got one image on one camera, um, well, I'd put it to you like this: uh, if I was only running one camera, I'll only get about ten percent of the deer that are traveling up it. Interesting, ten percent yeah. of 10%. The, only what your camera can see. Yeah. So that's one reason to yeah. not get all bent out of shape about trail cameras. Oh yeah, too. no, this is one thing. I mean, if you if you know if you're only putting one trail camera out, and you you're just you're not getting any information you're you, you may get one deer you may all these people that that get one to get a big deer it's like oh i gotta hunt this spot no i mean you are just wearing yourself out for nothing you know yeah because they're you're missing so much data you know literally so oh there's so much more to so you know the similarity uh Paul, and I don't know if anybody, everybody in the room has listened. I don't know if everybody's listened to the episodes with Chuck Young uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, where he's talking about hunting in, in Arkansas and these bucks like traveling up these drainages and how he likes so to. 390, s- I believe. Okay. And he likes to set up specifically watching those drainages of them coming up in elevation, cresting over the top of a secondary ridge point, either going over the top of the ridge or kind of milling around right there and he gets shot opportunities. And that's kind of cool based off what you've learned so far, Shane, with this is like, hey, if you're going to start in a new location, especially if it's like hill country um, or even maybe if it's just slight rolling hills, not big hills or mountains, starting in those drainages as a, as a starting spot and then kind of expanding outward. I mean, that kind of goes exactly with what Chuck's been seeing, too. Yeah, because mine started out with I'm, I'm on scrapes, you know, I'm finding them there. Well, I, you got to backtrack them. You know, if you get them here, you got to figure out well, where is he coming from because he's only at this scrape at night, you know. I'm just going. I'm going to so, say this right now, guys. So we are 
about 38 minutes in, and we just covered one sh- one chart. <laughs> I think there's nine charts. Okay, what else? This is this is really fascinating though about the, like this buck movement. Um, so just specifically with this one chart here, because I want to kind of start looking at a couple of these other charts. Um, but you know, with this very first chart, which was again the, the mature buck location by month. Is there anything else anybody has kind of input on this specific chart? Um, I, I know Mike, you just well, Mike, you just showed me something that looks kind of interesting. Yeah, is it worth talking about? Or is it like it's complicated? I was looking at, I'm like, I, I, yeah, it's it's the position of the sun in and, that orbit. Um, yeah, so the April and August uh, are the correlators, and then the March and September are. Um, and it's the same. It's the same distance at those months. Yeah, uh, positioning wise. Exactly. You 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 pulled. I don't know what this is called. I don't even know what that grass called. But it's just showing the orbit of the sun. I guess is this the sun or moon we're looking at? Sun. So it's the position of the sun based off how far it is from from the from Earth. And yeah, so those is position work. like in the sky. Oh. So like in the winter time, you know how it goes south. Sa- I mean, how you know it goes south. So like that's. Thirds tilt, yeah. Yeah, that's why it gets colder for us up here, mm-hmm. um, and then it comes back. You know, like right like now, elliptical. Yeah, southern the southern hemisphere is in winter right now, about to head into spring as we're heading into the fall because it's opposite because that tilt. So that's super interesting. Oh, well, one thing I do want to quote because I kind of got off is the the seven tenths of an acre is if you take a thousand acres and you run one camera on it. This is this is what I was trying to explain. You're only getting seven tenths of an acre's worth of information. If you take a thousand acres and you put one camera on it, if you just, you know, whatever space you're wanting to do, but if you take a thousand acres, you put one camera on it, you're only going to get the information for seven tenths of one acre of that. Okay. Actually, now, now, now you open up a can of worms. Um, by the way, when you're talking about like 600 acres, you can say roughly the deer are only going to use a third of that. Um, and so two thirds you could kind of cut out. What kind of got you to the point of like seeing that as like a representation? Because I, I mean, I had, put cameras out where I thought deer were at that looked like pretty deer country that would, you know, and then nothing, you know. And so it's just a process of elimination. And when you go back and revisit it, it's like, well, yeah, of course there's no deer there. Why would they want to be there, you know? Mm-hmm. After I mean, you, after you look more. at it, after you look at what they're doing, well, yeah, of course they don't want to use that. They're not going to walk down the middle of the, this wide-open hardwood timber, you know. So so it almost is one of those things that, like, especially in this habitat, because all, you know, there's so many different listeners that we have from different habitat types, and, and some may be more, um, have a wider range of, you know, quality of your habitat versus others, and some are more limiting. But like in this area, based off the habitat that's at hand, which is a mix of, I guess, pine and hardwoods in those areas, you know, thicker creek bottoms, stuff like that, that they're only using roughly a, a third of that landscape at, at a time, uh, which is something that's really kind of interesting, uh, uh, just about, you know, when you think of like where deer are wanting to be, if you can figure out that habitat that they're most consistently in, like this study, then you're like, oh, now I know what to cut out cut and out. I don't even have yeah, to worry yeah. about. Yeah. Like if you, if you, you know, if you're a hunter and you, oh, I want to go learn a new spot, we'll take you 600 acres, walk through it, or you don't even have to walk through it. You know, just pull it up, pull up any satellite image and look at where you have open hardwood timber, like where the canopy is basically covered and, and it looks underneath like a, a squirrel would be at home. If a squirrel loves it, deer ain't going to be there. He may walk through it to feed, but it's going to be at night. And wherever you're finding most of your your, if I, like I used to hunt, nothing but the hottest sign, like where they laid down all the rub scrapes, you know, down low, try to get on that. All of that is done at night. Like if you're hunting sign, you know, like fresh sign, like fresh rubs, you can just go ahead and assume that he did that at night. And, and just eliminate that, especially if it's not right during the rut or you're not hunting near doe bedding. These these spots that are they're really tightly packed with your terrain features and stuff where you're working. If you're in terrain that's a little bit more monotonous and it's larger features that are stretched out, your patterns are going to be a lot more stretched out. They're not going to just be so. It, it might be 600 acres there. But if you're in big, big mountain terrain, it's going to be several thousand acres sometimes for that same kind of concept. But it's still the same thing. Yeah, you, you got to, you're going to have to shrink your, depending on your your terrain, you're going to, have to either increase it or decrease it. You know, because some places you you may want to increase it by half, and sometimes you want to may want to 
multiply it by 10. You know? Yeah, I'm thinking like ag country, like yeah. Midwest. Like mm-hmm. you're talking like, you know, smaller wood blocks. So there's only so much kind of habitat those deer yeah, can actually live in. Eating, yeah. So that's probably, I mean, even tighter, like smaller range yeah. of yeah. like, you yeah, know, you, where that yeah. sun's going to be. You may see them in like 120 acres, it might be their entire range. Well, and then know? the polar opposite is Paul, you're, you've been scouting up in the Adirondacks and stuff. And that is like low deer density, giant wood. So you're probably at the other end of the spectrum with the big those ranges deer up go there. Six, seven miles throughout a season you know they're shifting way out there but they're still looking for those things that we're discussing they're just broader so you're almost just you're just zooming out and making the map look like it's a smaller map you just got to pretend it's smaller but you just got to go okay this they're going to go this way over here to this for this and then they're going to shift over to here later on and they'll move down a whole mountain because the mountain could be 10 miles long so the, the, it's just a bigger, bigger movement, but it's the same exact same thing. They're looking for the exact same drainages. It's just bigger stuff. Yeah. The, yeah. Paul, I was actually today at work. I was just kind of like goofing off, taking a little break. And I actually got to map scout in the Adirondacks a little bit. Cause you've been talking about scouting up there. And I was like, man, this is some serious, like serious mm-hmm. big woods up there. Yeah. It took me half a day. The last mountain I was on it took me half a day to get to the summit. God. Yeah, it's impressive, yeah. man. That's some, yeah, that's some cool country up there. I, I want to go. We half, might try to go this Half a day to walk up one drainage. Wow, man. So I, I really got to get to this, like this this chart. I got to. I, there's a couple that I'm really excited to talk about. I'm really excited about temperature importance relating to deer movement. So this is chart number two. Chart number two. I want to preface this by saying, and this is just my opinion. I, I'd be curious of what y'all think. In our area, this is so dead on with like what I've kind of been seeing over the years like what i've kind of assumed and just to kind of give people an idea it starts at like above 70 degrees and then it goes 60 to 70 you know 56 to 60 55 and and goes down like that um we'll go through them real quick so people know well so basically 50 to 60 50 to 55 um 46 to 50 41 to 45 36 to 40 31 to 35 so it goes down in increments of five okay and this is, it looks like a bell curve. Okay. So 70, they move a decent bit and then they move a little bit more at 60 to 70, a little more at 56 to 60, a little more at 51 to 55, almost the most at 46 to 50. And then they move the most at 41 to 45. And then it goes back down uh, when you get to 36 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit to where you're matching 51 to 55 degrees. And then it it goes down a little bit more, thirty one to thirty five degrees. That's that's pretty cold for down here. You get to twenty six to thirty, that's very cold for down here, and it drops almost the lowest. And then you get below twenty five for the last value, and it's like almost no movement. Once you get below that thirty degree mark, the movement just absolutely cliff dives where they're not going out. And it's something we've talked about on here a lot. Where I don't know if. If Paul, you see something similar, but our southern deer, at least, they're like us, man. It gets it gets down in those low, th- like mid twenties and stuff, dude. Our southerners, we don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. I I see more deer late season when you get like a more mellow week, and you could you could work out a pattern on these deer, you know, and they'll 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 be moving and stuff. But if you get a cold snap, it just turns it off. You, you can't even get you you're it's like they're gone, you know, but they're, they're all just sitting there under a hemlock tree or something trying to not die, you know. Yeah, it, it puts a knock in that, hey, I want to go hunt when it's you get that real cold snap. 17 you know? degrees, yeah, frosty. Be out there, yeah. I mean, no, you don't really, you want to stay in the house. And, and again, we're talking about this. I just want to preface this because we have listeners from all over the country. That we're, this, this was done in Alabama. So you guys up in Kentucky, Ohio listeners, upper Midwest, like this is not for you guys, but – the study's yeah. done in Alabama. In Alabama deer, this is yeah. well, but this is all relative. It's yeah. probably something similar up in those places where this 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 uh, shape of like this curve is probably the same, but it shifts downward. So if our cold snap uh-huh. is like mid twenty or anywhere from basically twenty degrees to thirty degrees, is cold down here. Uh, rarely it gets into the teens. Maybe like once or twice a year. Maybe, uh, but you know if you're a little bit further north and that. That extreme cold snap to y'all is like 10 degrees, but your deer are used to that 30 degree, you know, it, it might be, that might be like a peak movement. I don't know. Um, so that's just something yeah, to kind of keep in that's mind. All it it's just a little, it's got to be a little colder than that for mm-hmm. them to do that, you know. 
But if you're gonna if you want to plan a late season hunt, pick a week where it's consistent weather so you can get on deer, figure out a pattern, and work the pattern. Don't go there and like in mid weather changes because it's just gonna shut down a whole bunch of days of your hunt. I'll say that, except for if you're in Iowa, it's snowstorm. It's negative 25 at night. They're on the corn ASAP. I, I just saw that last year. But taking ag out of the equation, I, I agree with you, Paul, 100%. Ag, I think ag changes all of that. Yep. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, for real, like it was crazy. Like The feed period, the feeding I just saw right before the massive snowstorm hit, or the massive cold front, it really wasn't much snow, but got down to negative 25. It went from that to the next day. It was like negative four wind chills during the day, and all the deer were just yeah. stacking up. Oh, and it was yeah. just like they were packing on, the, trying to pack on as much yeah. carbs as they yeah. could. And, and corn, corn is a high energy food. They got to consume a lot more of it to keep going off of it versus other food sources. But they they'll just like shut their metabolism down when it gets really cold up here, and they'll just sit still, starve themselves. They rather not eat and then try to stay keep from freezing to death than than risk going all the way out there to get food and come back and burn all that energy. They got to pick a choice. It's either I'm going to burn energy and risk that, or I'm going to sit still and hope it gets better. You know, they got two options. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about this, Shane. This is again, really kind of interesting here. Again, like Andrew says, a bell curve guys go to our Facebook, go to our Instagram. You'll be able to see this chart specifically and kind of, you know, based off this study, what Shane, you put together uh, data wise, was there anything here that was out of the ordinary for you that you kind of thought was like, okay, that wasn't exactly what I was thinking? Or what, what is your take yeah, on this data? I, mean, I was thinking there would be more movement in that 31 to 35, 36 to 40. I figured that in my mind. I figured that would be the, 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 the apex, but it wasn't. It was the warmer temperatures, you know, and that was what really shocked me is I figured that, man, that cool snap. You know, you get that first one, you get you get a couple of them every time you get a, a front to come through and it drops the temperature down. That that should, you know, really show up in this. But really and honestly, it's that middle middle range temperature, that, 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 you know, 41 to 45 that really gets them on their feet, you know. They feel comfortable. That's the kind of day that I don't know about the deer, but when I walk outside and it's like 45 degrees, I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. feeling good. Is, is, now, is this yeah. also this is the, the top end temperature? Like, it's the highest temperature for the this day? This is the, the median. Okay, median. The median. So, okay, yeah. okay. Because that's one thing yeah. I was curious with because, like, those days when it's 40 to 40, you know, that yeah. low to mid 40s, it you was know, the median temperature. When it yeah. let sun goes down in the afternoon, dude, it's going to yeah, get chilly, yeah. oh, dude. Yeah. Especially if yeah. you're on one of the shaded sides yeah. of the hills and like yeah. the thermal aspect and everything. Yeah. So uh, that that's something that we talked about a little bit earlier that I was kind of curious about with this is because a lot of days, at least here in Alabama, again, this is very regional, but on a lot of those days where you're in, let's just say the 40 to 50 degree range, because um, those two values are almost neck and neck, 40 to 50 degree range, a lot of times if you have that temperature in the morning, you're going to have like, lower 30s, mid 30s, and a lot of times you have a frost, especially in fields and cutovers and stuff, and then it starts getting up into that, you know, mid 40s to 50 range, and that frost burns off, and that's when I, I like, I've killed a bunch of deer yeah. after oh, yeah. that frost is turned yeah. off. And you got to remember, this is, in, this is in one of the coldest areas in Alabama. Like, it, it's a good, the difference between the average temperature at this time of day where this is at and in Birmingham is almost 11 degrees. So it's 11 degrees cooler there. So that's another thing you've got to kind of factor in, too, is this is a much cooler area than, say, the middle of Alabama would be, you know. Interesting. Now, is this deer movement altogether or? Yeah, this is deer movement altogether. I'd like to see the breakdown of mature bucks and does uh, and see how it differs, too. Mm-hmm. And what about, um, well, I guess we're getting it next. We're not on wind yet. No, so yeah, we'll get there. Well, uh, so let me let me say this because I want to touch about this a little bit more, and we may we may wrap up this as a part one and can kind of continue for for listeners. But with this the the weather data here, uh, or talking about the the temperature again, I just find that really really interesting on the aspect that like when especially down here where we're at, like I've talked to guys up in the Midwest and stuff, and like a term that gets thrown around, and Paul, maybe you can touch on this because you found a bunch of different places too. But again, where you're at gets much colder than where we're at. When the term mid-weight, when it comes to clothing and garments gets thrown around, mid-weight in the Midwest is not mid-weight in Alabama. Okay? No, no, not at all. So, so yeah. and I'm going to bring this up, like, getting working yeah. with the guys from, yeah, from first. Don't take the advice from me on clothing. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. I'll I mean, be in a T-shirt. 
Well, yeah, weirdo. Freaking. <laughs> but, so, so, but, but that's something I want. I want just want to mention as well because, like, when you're talking about this data, like this, this deer is these deer are moving during what I would call kind of that midweight mid-weight, kind of garments. Yeah. Maybe like maybe have like a little bit heavier jacket on, but like yeah, kind of midway. Where guys in the Midwest is like this is hot. hot. Yeah, this is hot weather for them. Like for yeah. real. Like if yeah. you're if you're hunting Illinois and it's peak yeah. November and it's yeah. 50 degrees, they're yeah. like, what is going yeah. on, dude? The, the the when we added all these like all the data points together, the perfect medium between this was a 34 degree morning and a 57 degree high that was like if you got that average that was the best day basically uh, okay you, know, well, you could get I was saying, wait, wait, wait. a 34 degree okay. morning uh-huh. and a 57 degree high that was like where all of these kind of pointed to was that range like if you get it almost to 60 and and just below for just below for just above freezing I'm, I'm over. I'm just. I'm over yeah. scheming, dude. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so when I killed when I killed my first Alabama last year, it was like that. It was. It was. It was low. It was mid mid to low thirties that morning. Shot that buck. Um. That that morning specifically, and it it got up to probably mid fifties that day, um. And then dropped back down. We went and recovered that deer, and that was. I mean, I mean, just anecdotal, but that's something I saw. Here with Wes. No. Oh, no, no. The first that, that, year. Okay. Yeah. No. That was with us. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, that big buck that. Um, that I had the opportunity on last year, same exact scenario. It was a frost that morning. It was really cold, and that deer, it got up to about 45 degrees middle of the day, and I was, you know, out there kind of staying in tune with the deer. I'm laid up in a cutover in the sun, you know, because I've been walking all morning just trying to walk into some sign because uh, I had all day to hunt, and I'm laid up in this cutover trying to warm up, and that buck popped out at like 1030 right when it got in that temperature range. And that that's always been kind of a sweet spot for me. That's kind of what I was getting at earlier. Do y'all remember last year when we were down south? That last hunt we all went on. Do you remember? Do you remember me saying something I about there was that. a temperature down there when I started seeing all of the deer? Uh, probably. I'll be honest. You know, I remember a decent amount of that hunt, but I also remember how that broke Andrew. So that's the most yeah. memorable part. Yeah. I'm going to say that it was <laughs> it like break me. I'm going to say it was 38 <laughs> degrees. I wish I didn't remember oh, that. Oh, yeah, you did say that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. And it's like that. And also, was it a moon phase during that time of the month too? That like you kind of keyed in well, on, like in January. There's, there's definitely that, but it goes throughout the whole season. Yeah. So and it's well, it comes up inf- it comes yeah, up it comes up in this information so, big time so let me let me ask this paul do you have anything else on uh temperature uh you know when it comes to the second chart temperature importance uh relevating to deer movement do you have any other uh, kind of input since you're much more north than us uh in latitude yeah basically everything on this chart is going to be just kind of a little shifted just like they're, they're going to be a little more taller in a colder weather but you still see the same movement I'm curious of like, you know, like I said, below 25 is like a, a really, really cold, cold front for down here. What, what would that be for you guys? What temperature would be like really, really cold up there? Uh, zero. Okay. Around zero single digits. Okay. So yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering. Cause like I could just picture this like shifting down, you know, in temperature, but very, very, very interesting. And the deer, the deer are just bigger. So it's not as much for them, you know, oh, the that's bigger, a, warmer that's a good point. One thing, too, the you know? temperature with this, you got to think, is that 38 to 39 degree range is your frost burn off. Yeah. That's that's your that's your frost burn off point. And, that, and they like getting out, man. That frost burns off. You see, like, the, the steam kind of rolling off everything in the morning? Oh, yeah. I love a cutover at that, that time. Oh, mm. yeah, dude. It gets the, the sun starts hitting it and it just kind of falls listen, up. Listen, I love bow hunting, but God, I love having a rifle muzzle in my hand. When <laughs> I'm that's telling you, dude. I'm like, when that starts steaming on, I'm like, let's get ready. We're, we're staying yeah. it up, we're loosening it up. Like, okay, I froze my butt off for 45 minutes this morning. Now let's go. Yeah. So. <laughs> Guys, I hope you have enjoyed this episode so far hate to do this to you, but uh, this is actually a four-part series. Um, Jacob? Oh, listen, guys. You're going to want to make sure you're tuning in for it. <laughs> Start selling it, Jacob. Uh, well, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> it's four hours long. All Legit four hours long. Four- we finished it at like one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, like li- literally this is one of my favorite episodes and series we've ever done on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So this is part one. We are just barely breaking the ice on what we actually have to talk yeah. about. 
Uh, there's actually, as we talked about in the episode a little bit, there's nine charts that we're breaking down of all these data points that Shane has built out over this summer. That's one of the reasons why it's taken us so long to do this, this kind of follow-up series to what we did in May with him, talking about this 170 trail camera study that he's been working on the last two years. So, guys, you're going to want to make sure you're listening to this week's outro along with next week's part two episode because it's going to be a four-part series, and you're absolutely not going to want to miss any of this information, okay? So make sure you all follow along, check it out, share it with a buddy if you really enjoy this, and I'm going to tell you that we're going to have a lot of listener success stories from this series, so you're not going to want to miss it. Guys, we'll catch you back here on this week's outro this Friday. You all have a great week, and uh, stay tuned for part two of this series with Paul Butera and Shane Parker. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool. I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.